Testing, testing. <laughs> Stupid. Hey everybody in Serial Killer Country, my name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about. Each week, Brian and I find a true crime story that resonated with us. Then I'll discuss one well-known or lesser-known killer, go deep into their childhood, lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they got caught. Then we'll get a little spooky and learn something about the cryptids or the supernatural. And... Instead of talking about our Patreon, which you know about every week, I guess we should mention that I was on TV. <laughs> she was on last TV. Last week. Yes. <laughs> last Friday night on 2020. I was consulted to discuss really more the way the internet handled uh, Brian Laundrie and the Gabby Petito case. Mm. Uh, it was a, I did a three hour long interview. Yeah. I was in it a lot, roughly every 10 minutes. But it was still um, significantly truncated, <laughs> my, my portion of it. But regardless, it was a really great experience. And hands down, like working with ABC was quite possibly the most like group of professional people I've ever dealt with. We got a, we got a TV star over here now. Not only a TikTok star, but a TV star. Look at that. <laughs> but yeah. So this week we're going to make it a little bit different. Uh, we're not going to do this week in true crime. And instead, I'm going to jump right into part two of the Gary Ridgway podcast. And that's because I have a lot to talk about. Uh, when someone has 49 victims, mm. it's very difficult to talk about all of them as they are unfolding and being found in the case, which I wanted to do. So like I said, last week we talked about the mask of Gary Ridgway. We learned about his bizarre childhood, his obsession with prostitutes, his loves, his losses, his family, and really how he managed to pretend to be a regular person while slaughtering 49 confirmed victims, but definitely they think it's closer to 80. Mm -hmm. Between 1982, and honestly, originally I said between 1982 and 2001, but really the majority of these were between 1982 and 1984, with a alarming frequency. That's a lot. Yeah. You said he was doing a lot when his wife. No. It was after he broke up yeah. with his second wife there while he was still dating other people. Yes. Still confusing to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll find out that once we get to the point where the FBI psychiatrist talked to him at the end. But mm -hmm. uh, what we are going to talk about, though, is the 49 victims, the path that the eight Green River task commanders, 75 task force investigators, 10 evidence specialists, three different medical examiners, eight prosecutors, 10 task force consultants, nine FBI special agents, as well as the Des Moines Police Department, Tukwila Police Department, Kent Police Department, Thurston County Sheriff's Department, Snohomish County Sheriff's Department, Pierce County Sheriff's Department, Tacoma Police Department, oh Spokane Police Department, Portland Police Department, Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, Washington County Sheriff's Office, Clackamas Sheriff's Office, San Diego Sheriff's Department, San Francisco Sheriff's Department, San Francisco Police Department, and Las Vegas Police Department all did to capture Gary Ridgway. My this was, I mean, this is something that included hundreds upon hundreds of people. Yeah, oh my God. Just to catch this one guy. Mm-hmm. 
I also want to make a point before we begin that Gary Ridgway is one of the worst killers in U.S. history, only second to Samuel Little. And even though he is serving 49 consecutive life sentences, this case is not closed. There are still roughly 30 women they believe that he has conveniently forgotten where their remains are. Still several Jane Doe's that the police force are still working on today. Uh, so that those families have some kind of closure. And also, uh, for anyone listening, here's your trigger warning. We're going to be referencing sexual assault, necrophilia. I tried not to go into too much gory detail, but some of it had to be mentioned for the sake of the fact that some victims were staged. Mm -hmm. Mm. So we will start with the first victim. It's July 15th, 1982. A group of children actually stumbled across the body of Wendy Caulfield floating in Seattle's Green River. She'd been strangled after several days. Uh, No one came to identify her. She was only five foot four, about 140 pounds. She was wearing unhemmed jeans, a lace-trimmed blue and white shirt, and white sneakers. The medical examiner was unsure of her age, thinking she was a little bit older teen to a younger adult. And in the newspapers, they originally listed her as 25 years old, which might have explained why her family didn't come forward because they were like, that's not our daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was identified because she had... Four rather dainty tattoos and then one biker gang tattoo. Uh, When they released her tattoos to the local newspaper, a tattoo artist said, oh, no, she's not an adult. She's about 16 years old. Uh, I think she lives in Poyal up with her mother. That's what I said last week. I think it was last week. And I said, if I go missing, look for my tattoos. It's a good (laughs) idea. Like they put pictures in the the artist was like, oh, yeah, no, I did that. Mm hmm. Yeah, my uh, tattoo artist will definitely recognize. <laughs> She'd be like, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Wendy Caulfield's mother, Virginia, was sad, but not really all that surprised. Her daughter had run away from home, and she was worried that her daughter was working the streets and that she hadn't heard from her because she was probably killed by a John. Um, Wendy's mom said that she had been a pretty good girl and they'd done the best they could but Wendy had dropped out of school after her parents divorced got in trouble with the law she ran away often but she usually came home the papers showed Wendy's picture over and over hoping anyone local would have any idea where she'd been or who she'd been with when she died Uh, they withheld the worst details though which was that Wendy had been choked with her own panties Mm. It was a very violent death, but at the time, it was only one. Mm -hmm. So no one thought much of it. Right, right. On August 12th, 1982, Deborah Lynn Bonner was found about a quarter of a mile from where Wendy had been found. She was nude and stuck in nets and logs in the water. She was in the system, so the police were able to place her pretty quickly. She was 22 years old, and she'd been picked up for prostitution in the past on Pacific Highway South. She'd been seen alive on July 25th, leaving the Three Bears Motel. She told her friends she was off to catch a couple dates, but she never came back. Just like Wendy, Deborah dropped out of school. She had a hard time finding work. She tried to join the Navy, but couldn't pass the... uh, It's not just like a... It's a physical, but it's also... The the mental exam? Yeah, there's physical and mental exams, so she didn't pass. Uh, It's actually... It's rough when you learn that some of these people were really struggling, mm. but they were trying because Deborah was in the process of like starting to study for her GED. She was really trying to like turn around and start fresh, but you know, bills are still coming. Yeah. So you have to do what you have to do to survive. 
She actually had a thousand dollar debt to Pierce County for being arrested there previously, and she had been paying it off like twenty five dollars a week. Mm. You almost paid it. All. Oh she, God! She paid two hundred twenty five dollars by the time she died. She still called her parents collect like frequently. Um, she called her dad just before she went missing, asking him about an eye operation that she had and telling him that she loved him. Uh, her friends knew that she was hiding from a boyfriend slash pimp who was a convicted killer, uh, convinced that she owed him thousands of dollars. He was, of course, the sensible option for the cops to focus on. Mm-hmm. At this point, it would be another year before they even thought about Gary Ridgeway. So Detective Dave Richard uh, Reichert was put on the cases with Bob Lamoria, and they looked into both of them as two separate murders. That is until August 15th, when three more bodies were found. A local man was rafting in the shallows of the Green River looking for treasure and came across Marcy Chapman, who was 33. She was floating in the shallow water next to the naked body of 17-year-old Cynthia Hines, and not far from them was Opal Mills. She went missing when she was 16. Opal had gotten stuck in some underbrush and her blue pants were tied around her neck. She had bruises on her arms and legs showing that she had fought back. Wendy Caulfield and Deborah Bonner's murders might not have mattered a whole lot in the grand scheme of Seattle, but three in one day. Yeah, absolutely. In the same spot. Why in the same spot? Well, this was a this is a dump site. Yeah, so he was coming back and just dropping them off there. But come on, go go a little further downstream, buddy. Well, Detective Dave called major crimes immediately, mm-hmm. he, and so that Major Dick Krask got the call on his pager, and he knew it was something big because he never got calls on a Sunday. Now he had been involved with Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy's case when they had discovered all Ted Bundy's dump site right. out in Issaquah. So his old boss was like, put on your tie and your sport coat and meet me. So Major Krask put on his tie and jacket and went out to the Green River because he was like, we got another one. Oh, God. Now, before these three women were found, uh, the Bundy scene had been the worst thing that he had ever seen. And unlike the first two, which were kind of like lackluster body dump sites Mm -hmm. these were hidden in like thick vegetation they were also all weighed down with large rocks that had been placed on their chest and stomachs the placement was so precise that from the road you couldn't see the bodies so if that man had not been on that raft kind of just hanging out yeah floating through the shallows they don't know when they would have found those three bodies this is so no disrespect mm-hmm. to you know the the victims, but just I just think of like floating down to Susquehanna and they and right? like and you, At, like in the river in our yeah yeah just raft just floating tubing whatever you're, you're just, just tubing and all of a sudden you see like a naked body in the water and you're like holy crap crazy yes I would be um scared out of my mind i don't right i don't do well with dead bodies (laughs) i mean i feel bad that the first people who found the first victim were a group of children out in the woods it's terrible god now as for these three victims marcia was identified first she was 31 at the time she went missing she was known as tiny by her friends she had three kids who were 11 9 and 3 years old whom she supported by (sighs) escorting she had left her apartment on august 1st 1982 and never come home Uh, Cynthia was named next. She was 17 years old and everyone called her Cookie. 
She also made a living on the street. She worked the T-Sack strip, uh, which is just where Marsha used to hang out. Mm. Cynthia also had a pimp who kept her safe. And I say safe in quotation marks because the problem with these pimps and is that once you got in the car, you were alone. Yep. He didn't follow them, nothing. He didn't write down the name of the driver's license, nothing. Bad pimps. Her Terrible. pimp actually told the police he'd seen her August 11th, 1982, that she had gotten into a black Jeep. He hadn't written down the license plate. What do you mean, security? How are you taking a percentage of my business when I'm doing all the work? Hey, you ain't helping me with nothing. That's mm, terrible, terrible management. Well, they learned the identity of Opal because they had drawn a picture of her as if she were alive and put her in the newspaper. Opal's family was devastated. Uh, She had a mother, father, and brother who all cared for her a lot. They lived on the East Hill outside of Kent, Washington. Mm. Opal's mom told the police that they'd last seen her on August 12th, the same day the police were finding Deborah Bonner's body. She'd left to go to work, and she'd called her parents at 3 p.m. from a phone booth in Angle Lake State Park, telling her mom that she had gotten a job painting houses with her new friend, Cookie, the other victim. Mm-hmm. And they, they both get picked up at the same time. I'm not. See, we're not sure. So both Cynthia and Marsha had a history of sex work but opal did not like sometimes she would go like stay at her friend's house for a day and then she'd come home but that was the longest she'd even been away from her parents house none of her friends were like they were like absolutely not she would not have been doing something he, he like probably that. saw her hanging around them right and he then saw like- her with cynthia at one point and is since he knew that cynthia was working the strip mm-hmm you, obviously opal must be too obviously because you can't have like regular friends that you don't work well with. then i'd have been murdered by the green river killer because i got a lot of friends mm-hmm. who have done sex work <laughs> <laughs> oh god uh, unfortunately in the queer community a lot of people get kicked out of their homes and this is what they end up doing yes so i have a lot of friends who ended up doing that as a survival technique when they were fairly young as well mm-hmm. that's one thing that's going to be pretty consistent with these victims a lot of them are roughly 15 to 18 years old which is absolutely heartbreaking, but <sighs> another issue we have here is that Ridgeway assumed that like almost every woman was trash. That's, so that's right. He did have that hate. Right. Yeah. He hated women like for real. <laughs> yeah. So who's like, right. You're right. You were right. He might've seen her with Cynthia Hines and thought, mm. Oh, look, she's hanging out with her her hoe friends. But he also could have just been like, I don't care. I'm picking up this girl randomly. So Mm. who knows what really happened? The police tried their best to keep like the worst details out of the press. The the whisperings of a serial killer in Kent killing prostitutes was already happening. I mean, you got five bodies. So, yeah. And as these stories go, it's it's kind of... uh, I don't want to say fun, but it's it's you look at other people who are going through something awful and you don't think it can happen to you. And the prevailing thought in all of the papers at the time was if you're not a prostitute, then you're safe. But we already see that's not true because one of the five was not. Yeah. So all you had to do was be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And Ridgeway would kill you. 
Now, on the day after the three bodies were found, Dick Crass began putting together the Green River Task Force. Wasted no time. Uh, in the past, you and I have mocked police forces for waiting too long or going too slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that did not happen here. The initial task force had 25 investigators from King County, Seattle, Tacoma, and Kent police offices. Krask and his men had no idea what they were about to deal with, but they had no idea if this was a killing team, a solo killer, because recently there had been uh, O'Toole. And so that was a a duo, even though that was a, a weird sort of duo. But one thing that they did know, though, was that the killer was definitely some kind of smart and willing to adapt his methods in order to stay hidden hmm. because the first two were found floating down the river and he adjusted his kill method very quickly, his his dump method. Right. To hiding them and then, like trying to pressure them down mm-hmm. to the water. Yeah. He got he got smarter in terms of his forensic countermeasures. Right. They also realized that he was going to have to find another dump site now which meant they were going to be working completely in the dark. Now, one of the details they did manage to keep out of the press was that all three who had been found in the most recent dump site had rocks that were wedged inside of them so tightly that they had to be surgically removed. This was the kind of thing that knew that this crime had a sexual element to it. They couldn't tell if the women had been raped like the first two victims had. Mm -hmm. But one thing you learn when you look into lust killers and things of that nature is that sometimes when a killer cannot perform, you have that kind of a response. Right. He might have done this after he killed them in a moment of anger and also to prove that he still had some kind of virility. Hence why the the phallic sim the phallic item was placed inside the women. Mm, okay, okay. But they all had been strangled. The rest of August went by, no more bodies being found. The city calmed down a little bit and people stopped being anxious. The girls on the streets started going back out alone again. The task force decided to use this time when there was kind of a lull in the active people joining the or the active crimes happening to begin looking into missing women dating back to 1981 and 1982 and trying to see if they had gone missing anywhere near where these three women were found. The next woman who was found was Giselle Lovorn on September 25th when a biker was in the woods and smelled her remains. Mm. She was found nude except for men's socks that had been tied around her neck. She'd gone missing on July 17th, just after her 17th birthday. She was only in Seattle because her boyfriend had convinced her to leave California with him. She'd actually decided to go back home and be with her family, but she ended up going back to their place to get her stuff, and he convinced her to stay. Of course. She ended up choosing to work the strip in order to make some money since she hadn't finished high school either, despite the fact that she had 145 IQ. Uh, Really? Wow. It's believed that she probably hadn't been paying too much to the news or she'd have, you know, realized what was going on. She wasn't from the area. Her boyfriend uh, later told the press that he tried to report her missing, but the police ignored him. But he was actually wrong. They did add her to the missing women from for the Green River case. Hmm. 
Giselle was the first victim to show that Ridgway had changed his dump site and he had escalated from just strangulation to necrophilia. Which we know from last week was something that he was going to start struggling with because that was the part that he found to be the most revolting. Which is so interesting because we'll find, like later on, when he ends up finally talking to the FBI psychiatrist, there's so many things that he admits to that are very foul. Words I didn't even know existed. Oh, new vocabulary? New vocabulary. <laughs> Yay. But the thing that made him go, you know what? I'm crossing the line here. Having sex with bodies that I murdered already. Mm. Just wow. Yeah, I don't, I don't get that. Well, by the time Giselle was found in September, the task force had interviewed over 300 people. They had made a request to the Behavior Science Unit of the FBI for a consult. Uh, The only two that could be linked together were Opal and Cynthia, who had gone to the same high school together and also were friendly. Mm -hmm. Deborah and Cynthia had gone to the same bar in Tacoma, but no one had ever seen them together in the bar or speak. So they just happened to be at that bar near each other. Right. Dick Crass came up with the first profile. He said he thought they were looking for someone who lived in Pierce or Kings County, was familiar with the Green River. The dump site was not a common stopping point for many travelers. At this point, the case was only known in Washington and Oregon. Uh, The task force moved to a central location at the King County Courthouse, which was a super old building with marble hallways and a really shaky foundation. Like legitimately, they were told if there's an earthquake, this building might fall. We're going to put you in that one. Okay. Major crimes filled one big room, and then the smaller rooms had, like, random offices for narcotics and other things. The Green River Task Force met in the same room where the Ted Bundy Task Force met in the 70s. It was a small, narrow room up the back steps of Floor 1A. There were maps and charts of all of the dump sites on the walls. The phones pretty much rang all day and all night. Uh, A woman by the name of Faye Brooks, uh, who delightful cool lady um <laughs> we'll we'll hear more about her later because she was probably one of the, the few cops who was very media savvy so she ended up doing a lot of the public interviews okay. in terms of talking about the green river killer but both Faye brooks and dave reichert took most of those calls uh Faye brooks had kind of cut her teeth in the sex crimes division so she absolutely was needed on this case because she had the background of understanding sex criminals In late January of 1983, now six weeks into the investigation, a man was laying water pipes found a shallow grave about 100 yards from Northgate Hospital. He discovered the skull and immediately called the police. The skull and its bones belonged to Linda Jane Rule, who'd been missing since September of 1982. She had no soft tissue left, so they couldn't tell how she died, and she had to be confirmed by her dental records, but they already had her missing report in the file. Right. She was someone listed as potentially missing based on her lifestyle being in that she was a prostitute. Mm -hmm. She was 16 years old when she was last seen leaving her motel room, walking to the Northgate mall. That was really all they had to go on. So Sergeant Bob Holter and Captain Mike Slesman of Seattle homicide were quoted as saying, technically we're not calling this a murder. We don't have enough to go on for that but the results are the same she is dead and we don't know why she well, would be confirmed as a 
Ridgeway victim. Right. When he eventually took them to all the sites. But this happens in 2002. I'm just saying, you find like a skeletal remains Mm -hmm. buried in a shallow grave somewhere in the woods. True, true. What makes it not a murder? What makes you think it's not a murder? Well... I mean, with the evidence, I guess evidence... Right, there's no evidence. They had no... Because the problem is, Ridgeway wasn't... Interestingly enough, since I brought up Gabby Petito, Gabby Petito had signs of a strangulation. Right, yeah. Which means there could have been broken bones in her neck. Mm -hmm. That was not what they found here with these victims. But they were all strangled. They were strangled, but they were not strangled to the point of breaking, like, the hyoid. Right. So it was just enough to probably knock them out or. Right. Because the Gabby's Gabby's was more of a passion crime. It a passion, Another uh, thing is that sometimes Gary would put his arm around them. Yeah. While he was behind them. You don't have. Yeah. You don't have your. And that's not the same as putting your hands and that crushing pressure. Absolutely. That. Yeah. Also, the same thing is. uh ligature marks or things of that nature well we don't find any ligature marks because these are just skeletal bones right. at this point this, the tissue's gone i'm just saying if i find some skeleton in the woods you're like this is obviously a murder <laughs> somebody murdered this person <laughs> well with each murder they got more suspects and they had to be interviewed and crossed off the list one of those suspects was gary ridgeway See, in the spring of 1983, Marie Mulvar, she was 18, got into an old pickup truck with a dark-haired man in his 30s or 40s. Marie's boyfriend had seen it, and he also reported her missing. On April 30th, 1983, they went to Ridgeway's home and questioned him about her. And one of the, like, really annoying details with this interview that they did here was that one of the previous victims, I told you she had fought back, Mm -hmm. Opal had bruises. Right. She'd also scratched the absolute crap out of him. And he one of his arms was jacked up. And so when the police came to talk to him, he had to very like methodically lean on a fence to make sure that they didn't see that everything was that that he had gotten like severely scratched. He got in a fight. What happened there? You had a fight with a cat or something, huh? Right, yeah. So he specifically like made sure that when they they walked up to the house. He was leaning against the, the fence so that they couldn't see his arm. He knew what he knew what was up. Mm-hmm. Now, the next set of remains were found kind of painfully on Mother's Day, May 8th, 1983, by a family hunting for wild mushrooms. She was found a distance from the strip, but to the task force, this felt like the Green River Killer. Her name was Carol Ann Christensen. She was 22, the single mother of a five-year-old daughter, and she'd gone missing five days prior. Um, she was really excited because she had just found a job after a really long time searching. She lived near the Pack Highway, and she would frequently walk walk it on foot because she didn't have a car. Mm-hmm. She was a waitress at the Bar Door and Tavern, which was very close to White Shutters. And if you remember from last week, that was the bar that Gary Ridgway used to go to for his parents without partners events yeah that's the same bar he met his third wife judith in carol lived three blocks away the police were sure she was a victim of the green river killer because her remains had a very strange ritualistic take she had not been raped before she died she had been strangled 
A brown plastic bag was over her head. She was sitting half up with her hands across her stomach. Her body had been dunked in water and she had been reclothed, but backwards. Like one of her f- shoes was on the wrong feet and the other one was just gone. There were two cleaned fish left on her chest as well as raw sausage like left on her like stomach. Mm-hmm. They found a wine bottle in her hand and just like the three women in the water, a stone had been placed inside of her. And that was the thing that made it seem like it was a Green River killing. Yeah. It was almost like he had ritualistically put her in water because he couldn't take her back to the dump. Right. Yeah, I kind of got that. You get the fish and he put her in like a puddle or something. Well, they thought the fish thing was kind of like a weird play on the Eucharist. Mm -mm. And we know that Gary Ridgway did go through a time period where he was like obsessive with Christianity. Mm -hmm. The real clincher, though, was the stone. Yeah, yeah. That would have been he wasn't able to rape her because of his own physical issues. And for all we know, he might have come back and maybe the stone was there to protect her. Um, he later told oh, investigators that she was special. That's why he had done so much extra. With the sausage and the fish and then the yeah. bottle of wine. Yeah. Both Carol and her daughter, Sarah, were members of the Blackfoot tribe of Browning, Montana, and her parents lived in Hokum, Idaho. So at least Sarah wasn't alone after her mom died. Now, while it's rare that serial killers, and for the record, we are definitely at this point mm-hmm. in Seattle referring to them as a serial killer. While it's rare that they kill people they know personally, it's not impossible. Because we've talked about this before with the compulsion or the impulse to murder being so strong that sometimes you, you take risks. Yeah. So even though she was a waitress... At the bar that he frequented, it's thoroughly plausible that he might have picked her up because he just needed to to kill someone. That itch. Mm-hmm. And Carol Ann was easy pickings because she walked right by mm. every day. Uh, the King County investigators kept Carol's case under the Green River Killer because it was in his hunting grounds. And they had triangulated a general area based on the dump sites that they knew. And another weird detail is that Carol is the only person Ridgway would go on to stage. So whatever point he thought he was making that day, we'll really never know. (laughs) But this did tell the task force one detail. They knew this man was not mentally ill in any way. It was all too thought out to be yep. the work of someone who was truly crazy. The next victim was found 13 months after the first murder. Her name was Shonda Leah Summers. She'd been missing since October 7th, 1982. Her family had been looking for her pretty nonstop for 10 months. And also, when I keep saying SeaTac, that's Seattle, Tacoma. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm using the... Uh, so the SeaTac airport... Uh, She was found near an airport flight path. Two days after that, another set of remains were found nearby. Both Shonda and the other woman were so badly decomposed that they couldn't do a base identification. Shonda was identified by dental records, but they still don't know the the identity of the other woman. Oh, wow. Goodness. 
Gail Lynn Matthews was found September 18th, 1953, missing since April. She was 24 years old, and just like many of Ridgeway's victims, she was down on her luck and just trying to survive. Gail's boyfriend reported her missing, and by the time she was found, he was in prison. And he felt so bad that he even agreed to be hypnotized to remember the last time he saw her. And he told them that she got into a truck. He actually said that um, at some point he saw her drive by and he had waved at her and she looked strangely at him. And he wasn't sure why she hadn't waved back. Hmm. And it was more than likely because at that point she was being threatened. Um in October, they found three more victims. First, October 15th, Yvonne Antosh, 19, found just off of Highway 18 near I-90, missing since May 31st. A week later, they found Constant no- Constance Known, 20 years old, uh, missing since October 27th, found near South 192nd Street. Sorry. She was found on October 27th, missing since June 8th. Okay. <clears throat> then they found Kelly Marie Ware. She was 22 and she was near Constance's body. In fact, the police continued to search that area mm-hmm. because they were like, this seems like a dump site. And so they found Mary Bridget Meehan. She was 18 years old when she went missing. That was, they found her on November 13th. That this was official. This was another dump site, yeah. which meant this was another place that they had to keep looking through. <sighs> Dick Krask was spurned by this new crop of bodies and he decided they were going to cover more land, interview more witnesses, talk to every missing girl in the area and their family and anybody they'd come into contact with. This, of course, created a massive database, which often led to nowhere. But if there was even the tiniest chance they could get something to go on, he wanted it. Mm -hmm. So far, the only good thing that really come from this case was that the working girls in Seattle were less afraid of the cops. And now... Like they were sort of allies. <clears throat> right. Yeah, and yeah. so if like they met a weird guy or somebody like roughed them up, they would call the police and be like, yo, I just came from this guy's house and he has like a bunch of knives. Mm. Just letting you know. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Just because a guy has a lot of knives or swords does not make him. <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm not making a dig at you. I'm, that's actually one of the calls that's referenced. I was about to say, look. I was like, you looking at me like, hey, I like knives, okay? But no, um, this created a weird sort of cooperation between the Seattle PD and and sex workers. It actually crossed people's mind that since this next crop was one of the the dump sites was near an airport, they were like, do you think he's like a frequent flyer? Hmm. Like, maybe that's why we're finding them sporadically. So, and the SeaTac airport is right in the middle of the, the hunting grounds. So, Krask reached out to every major airport across the United States and the police precincts near them and said, hey, are you having a series of women go missing around this area? And when all those police responded, no, they were like, okay, bet he has to be local. Mm-hmm. With the fall and the winter on the horizon, they were expecting there to be less women would be on the strip, so therefore less at risk. Uh, just before Christmas, Kimmy Kai Pitzer was found uh, December 15th. She'd been missing since April 17th. Uh, Kimmy went missing the same day another girl named Sandy also went missing. They were both dark-haired 16-year-olds, very sweet and kind, had hit a defiant, rebellious stage in their life. Uh, Kimmy did have a boyfriend 
slash pimp. This one was at least able to give them more information about the car. They said it was a pickup truck. It was old green. It had a camper attached on the back and there was primer paint on the passenger door. Oh, nice. They nice. printed this description in all the local papers, <laughs> but there are a lot of old trucks with campers on them because we're literally in the middle of the wilderness. Yeah, okay. At least back then it was the wilderness. It's a lot more built up now. In two years, they'd found 15 bodies and they weren't any closer to figuring it out. There were a couple promising leads that hadn't panned out, like Melvin Foster, the 63-year-old cabbie who got himself put on the suspect list when he walked into major crimes and told them that he had information about all the women. <laughs> Eventually, he voluntarily gave a DNA sample and there was no match, so they moved on. Mm -hmm. uh, Max Tackley was the guy who was the convicted killer who dated Deborah Bronner. Uh, he also was exonerated through DNA evidence. John Norris Hanks was a serious contender as a convicted rapist and murderer, but it was determined that he had actually been murdering people in San Francisco. Oh. Not in Seattle. Oh, my, our, just, our mistake. Our mistake. San Francisco. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, go there. Go to jail. Um, so he ended up getting arrested for those murders in the September of 1982, which meant he was not free during the time when a bulk of these women were found. Right. In the dead of winter, they find nobodies. The women were still continuing to go missing from the area. So the task force spent the winter working for the working in those 300 leads. Mm -hmm. Just before the new year, Frank Adamson takes over the Green River Task Force. There was a rumor that the Green River Killer could be a cop. And Frank was the former head of the Internal Investigations Unit. And he'd managed to be the leader of internal affairs pretty much. And still have friends in the police force, which meant he was doing pretty good. Good, good, good job, guy. Uh, also, Krask had been on this depressing case for two years now. New eyes, new enthusiasm might yeah. allow for new connections. He's like, I need a break, I need a vacation. There were 40 detectives as part of the task force now, and they moved them out of that crappy small courthouse room into the Burien Precinct area, which was closer to the hot zone for the murders. The state also started pumping a lot more money into the task force than had given Krask. Most of the original detectives on the case were pulled back and given a chance to rest, mm -hmm. except for Dave Reichert, Bob Lamoria, Ben Caldwell, Rupe Ledich, and Faye Brooks, who all were like, nah, we're staying. <laughs> Frank Adamson said that he thought within six months they'd have the killer. Hmm. He even admits in uh, Anne Rule's Green River Running Red book, in hindsight, we probably should have caught him. But we'll talk more about that later. The first of uh, 1984 victims was found February 14th. Her name was Delise Plager. She was 22 and she had gone missing in October. She was known as Missy by her friends and Missy had been living with someone while trying to find a new place to live. She had two children and a life full of struggle like so many of the people you're going to hear about today. Both she and her twin brother had been removed from their mother's care when they were five, put in different foster homes. Missy very openly grieved the loss of her family and she actually looked for her brother until her death. Uh, Missy didn't really want to work the streets. She tried to stay with a couple of her male friends while she was transient. And all of them had tried to groom her mm. into like a set. It's really interesting. 
and I can't say that I haven't seen this happen in real life, but it'd be, it'll be wild. People will find out like that they're dating someone who does sex work. And all of a sudden now you got ideas about how to do this job. (laughs) I literally, I literally had it happen with a friend and I was just like, she has been out here doing this for you. What do you think you can do? Yeah. You You don't know nothing about this industry. You have no idea. Oh my God. She been out here making videos, doing all sorts of, well, I think I can, you know, make, sir, if you don't shut the whole hell up. How about you just start your own business with yourself, sir? It didn't so go that really way. It's interesting that that was what's happening here. They're like, oh, you know, you're thinking about doing, you know, street work. I can help you, girl. No, that's okay. I'm good on my own. <laughs> I can do she, bad by myself. Well, she tried to avoid it for as long as she could um, until she had no other options left. And of course- we know that she ended up in one of Ridgeway's vehicles. Yeah. As the frost melted, they found five more women at a new dump site in March. Lisa Yates, 19, had gone missing just before Christmas on December 23rd. She was found March 13th, 1984. Her skeletal remains were found near exit 38 off of I-90. This was a whole different location, so they weren't sure originally it was the Green River Killer. Uh, it was east of Seattle on the way to the Snoqualmie Pass. And this made them wonder, could he be a trucker? Hmm. Since those are one of the number common uh, serial killer uh, yep. jobs. They found Wendy Stevens on March 21st. She was one of the youngest victims. She was only 14 years old. Uh, she actually also, I don't believe she was a, a sex worker either. She was a runaway from Denver. She was found near the SeaTac airport as Addison and his men went back and looked at old dump sites. She was actually the one who remained unnamed and we talked about her earlier this year. Her parents took a DNA test in 2019 specifically to see if their daughter was dead and if her DNA was logged in any systems in the United States. They then paid for that to be matched further, and in September of 2020, they got an answer, and it was released in January of 2021 when you and I talked about it. Mm-hmm. The next woman was found one day later, March 22nd, 1984. Her name was Cheryl Lee Wims. She was 18 when she went missing in May of 83. She was found near a ball field not far from the SeaTac airport. She was a waitress and a rest in a restaurant downtown Seattle, uh, described by her boss as quiet, conservative, and conscientious. Her po- her, pa- uh, her mother told the police that she had some issues with drug use in the past, but that she'd never been involved in prostitution. Then on March 31st, 1984, they found two more bodies. Dolores Williams, who had been 17, missing since March of 83, and Debbie Abernathy, 26, missing since September 5th of 1983. Dolores was found at the Star Lake dumping site and Debbie was found near the logging, a logging road off of Highway 410. So all five of these were found at previous dump sites that we've already discussed so far. And that's only because part of the task force methodology was continuously combing the area to see if he was going to continue dumping in the same locations. But they're still finding old bodies. Uh, yeah, I was about point. to say, yeah, these are older bodies. So Yeah, they're still finding people who went missing in 82 and 83. So he definitely, God, he was hiding those pretty well. They're just finding like little missing, like little little pebbles. Well, you know. one of the weird details with uh, Ab- Debbie Abernathy was that a man was later walking down the highway 
Highway 18. He found her driver's license. She was from Waco, Texas, and turned it in. So then they went back to that area of a separate, it was a separate highway, mm. and they found her son's birth certificate. And so for some reason, as he's driving away from the crime, he takes her like stuff and throws it into the wind. The guy or? Ridgeway would have. Oh. And the question is, why? Yeah, why? It's so weird. Like, is this him saying like, hey, come find her because you all suck? Or is this just his way of trying to get rid of the stuff? No, he was probably leaving breadcrumbs. If he wanted to get rid of them, he would have like burned it or kept it or something. He was leaving breadcrumbs for them to follow. And like March 31st, there's no time to breathe because April 1st brings two more bodies. Terry Renee Milligan, 16, missing since August 29th of 1982. Sandra K. Gabbert, 17, missing since April 17th, 1983. Terry had been working the street when she went missing. Her boyfriend reported her missing and then he disappeared. The Hmm. motel manager where the two had been living said that he'd seen Terry arguing with another girl. Just like everybody else on this list, Terry was a bright girl, good student. She had a baby in middle school, and that's why she had dropped out of school to take care of her baby. Sandra had also dropped out of school, and Sandra's mother had discovered her working the streets. And her mom was like, listen, you could get yourself killed doing this. But Sandra was confident that she was better than those other girls. Both of them were found near the Star Lake dump site. (sighs) We're not done yet, though. April 2nd, Alma Ann Smith found also near Star Lake. She'd been missing since March 3rd, 1983. She was from Walla Walla, Washington, and she was seen in front of this hotel. So it was a Red Lion. You know those hotels. Yeah, yeah. And it was directly across from the airport. And apparently, even though this was considered to be like a nice hotel in the area, Mm -hmm. there definitely were always women at the bus stop in front of the Red Lion. Who were, you know... Well, it was a nice Getting ho- picked up. Yeah, it's a nice hotel. Why not? <laughs> this hotel in itself is linked to to well over a dozen of the murder victims. Oh, God. Um, one of her friends reported that they saw her get into a dark pickup truck with a white guy. Never saw her again. April marches on. April 20th, they find Tina Marie Thompson. She was 21. Been missing since July 25th, 1983. Her skeletal remains were found under a green trash bag, along with the bones of animals near Highway 18 in a very remote location. Now, hers was an interesting one because she was found by a psychic named Barbara Kubik Patton, who truly believed that she was speaking with the deceased who were telling her where the bodies were found. Hmm. She was super upset the task force wasn't listening to her. She even tracked down Anne Rule and like interrupted Anne while she was having dinner. And Anne was just like, listen, you're going to have to find a body to make these detectives listen to you because nobody agreed with her. And so she started showing up at dump sites. And when she found. She found Amina Agashev, who was on the missing list, but was ultimately not one of the Green River Killer victims. And then she found Tina Thompson. They ended up giving her a polygraph test just to make sure she wasn't involved. Are you sure you didn't do any of this? So we're only in May of 84 and we've already found 10 women, which is more than the previous year. Faye Brooks 
at this point had to step up and become the media maven that she was because she was the only person who really had a lot of like media training at that point. Mm -hmm. So they looked at their previous list of suspects and they kept coming back to Gary Ridgway. There wasn't much evidence, though, although he had been arrested for trying to pick up a police officer and they had interviewed him about that missing girl he'd been seen with. They didn't have any physical evidence to say that this like skinny guy was anything other than a creep, but they wanted to talk to him again. So in May of 1984, they brought him in and questioned him because it was all they could do at the time. Mm. He, of course, denied any involvement and even agreed to a polygraph test. Now, unfortunately, we know that the parameters of the machine were off and had it been calibrated correctly, he would have failed. But they went with the information they had at the time. God damn it. And they had to move on to other potential killers. For the time being, though, Gary was just a creep and they were going to keep an eye out for him if his name came up again. <clears throat> at the end of May, on the 26th, they found the remains of the 26th Green River victim. How poetic. Colleen Brockman. She'd been missing since Christmas Eve, 1982. It is believed that Colleen was the last of the Washington State victims. She was only 15 years old when she went missing and she had run away from home. The reason why there's confusion here is because at some point, Gary went back and moved the bones around. They found bones of victims that of, of from dump sites in Washington. They found some of those bones in Oregon, which really confused things. Yeah. That's because Gary Ridgway looked at the, the remains as if they were like, it was like a possession. And so like he moved them around like they belonged to him. But uh, Colleen lived with her dad near Lake Washington, uh, the Lake Washington Ship Canal. And her dad wasn't sure why she had left this time, but she'd taken a lot of her stuff with her. And he tried to get law enforcement involved because they were like, maybe if she gets arrested and has to go to juvie or something, we can get her like some point of court appointed therapy. Uh, Colleen had turned to prostitution to provide for herself while she was on the run. And of course, right. she ended up in the dark pickup truck. Yeah. Now, the next few months, things kind of slowed down in terms of finding bodies. Uh, the lull again, again, gave people a false sense of security. And even though local PD were trying to encourage women to avoiding the strip of the highway near the TSAC airport, they just, people were, you can't stop because people need money. Yeah, I, I get that. Well, so during this time period, Dave Riker and Robert Keppel decide to talk to Ted Bundy and he reached out to them. He actually, uh, Keppel ended up writing a book uh, about these interviews called The River Man, Ted Bundy and I Hunt for the Green River Killer. And Bundy was the first to offer up the idea that the River Man, as he called him, was going to go back to the bodies over and over again. Mm -hmm. This wouldn't be confirmed for quite some time, actually. And they couldn't really use any of the information that they were kind of gleaning from Ted Bundy in the actual investigation because he was a convicted murderer okay. about to ride right. the lightning right 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 yes uh but what these interviews what these letters and ultimately they did go fly to uh bundy in 1986 and talk to him but what these interviews showed dave was that serial killers are a lot alike uh keppel would continue corresponding with bundy for the next two years eventually they went to interview him in person mm-hmm 
October 12, 1983, Mary Sue Bella was found 366 days after she went missing. Near Highway 410, milepost 37, she was 25, which made her a lot older than his usual victims. Her family tried to get her out of the life of work in the streets, but she'd been struggling since she was young. She was streets-wise and a lot smarter than the other girls, but she also had a problem with drugs and alcohol. Uh, one of the things that they mentioned a lot about her was that she was very kind to other people on the street and tried to help them. Uh, she had even called the police and reported a guy that she met on September 12th, 1983, who had creeped her out. She was looking out for the other girls who were working. Was it Gary? Or does, do you not know? You not know? No. Um, she said he had a lot of knives, and this guy had a lot of knives oh, in his car. That's the that's the one I was telling you about. That people like the actual workers <laughs> called it in. I'm just saying, you don't have knives in your car though, I, and you have them like displayed in cases at your house. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's a little different. Uh, that report was actually added to their case file. A month later, though, she was gone, and her mother kind of had an idea that she was gone too. Um, Mary always called her every other day and, uh, probably one of the saddest details about Mary Sue Bellows case is that her mom, Sue Velleman died from cancer, never knowing what happened to her kid. Oh, that's terrible. Since Mary had been found near highway 41, they decided to keep working that area and they discovered the remains of Martina Authorly on November 14th, 1984. She was 18. And she was last seen May 22nd, 1983, outside of the My Place Tavern. A hunter found her along with wet porn magazines and smut books. Oh, God. Can you imagine what he's using using those for out there? Yeah. 1984 ended without much fanfare. No disappearances. No remains found. Third Christmas that would pass with family still not knowing any information. Mm Mm-hmm. And just like that, it was 1985. In January, Don, uh, Dr. Don Rea released details about four sets of remains that they still had no name for. They had found remodeling in the first Star Lake victim's pelvis, and one of her arms had been dislocated. And a woman by the name, well, Gail Matthews' sister remembered that her sister had been injured in a boating accident, and she had fractured her pelvis and so they were able to get the x-rays and confirm that the first star lake victim was gail matthews uh shirley ann roy was 15 when she went missing in june of 1983 and they found her march 10th 1985 near star lake these were old remains and so People started telling themselves, maybe the Green River Killers moved on. Maybe he's in jail. Maybe he died. Mm, like the Zodiac. <laughs> right, less than like the Zodiac. <laughs> ah. The task force was like, maybe he just moved to a new area and is still killing people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next two victims were Shirley Marie Sherrill and Denise Darcel Bush. Uh, Shirley was 18 and Denise was 23. They were found on June 14th and June 12th. And it actually brought the best thing for the case. The FBI officially joined the investigation. There had been phone calls like back and forth with John Douglas. And, but this was, they actually sent like 10 investigators. Uh, 
Hmm. Uh, because these were also another marked change. Both of those girls were found in the suburbs of Seattle in a city named Tigard, and both had been missing since the fall of 1982. So another dump site. Right. A different one. Yeah. The FBI referred to this case as Major Case 77, Green Murders. And it was good that the FBI joined because that made this a bigger deal. Uh, September brought the discovery of Mary West, 16, missing since February 6, 1984. And then with the feds joining, there was now a million-dollar federal grant to expand the task force in November. People were sure there was going to be an arrest now. (laughs) Still didn't come. Nothing. In fact, the original politician who had backed the first task force was no longer in office. His name was Randy Ravel, and his replacement, Tim Hill, wasn't all that enthusiastic about the task force at this point. So the FBI started looking at the women's disappearances and writing summaries about each of the reports, Mm -hmm. looking for patterns in their lives and behaviors. Racially, the victims were all over the place, and it seemed the killer didn't have any racial preference. They were all strangled, though, in some way, sometimes manually or through some kind of ligature. They did have one woman who had survived being raped, beaten, and stabbed. Her name was Moira Bell from Oregon. She had probably given the most detail to the guy, but still like it was like the, um, unfortunately the definition is still like white guy with a beard, kind of skinny in a truck. Like it's still not good enough. Millions of little white guys like that. Yeah. Some of the most brilliant minds in policing are now working on this case. We're talking for like three and a half years. They spent over $8 million. The FBI sent 10 more agents to the task force. Everyone was optimistic. This was it, right? It had to be. Now, one thing people talk about is the DNA evidence. DNA sequencing was still very new. Like, I saw an article that said, like, first killer found through DNA evidence in, like, 1985. Oh. Oh. Right, so we're at the beginning of DNA being used in the court system. (laughs) Right, yeah. But still, they were like, if this is a thing that could happen in the future, we're going to try and get as much DNA evidence as we can. We're clipping all the fingernails of all the victims. Yeah. You know, things like that. Ed Hansen, a member of the task force, came up with the idea of, listen, instead of us going to all these dump sites, which are up and down hills, Mm. in ravines, swamps and stuff... Why don't we just hire professional surveyors to traverse this area and give us proper maps, which turned out to be a genius idea. And it freed up the task force instead of them, you know, mucking up their way through it to work on other stuff. True, true. Now, just before the new year, they find Sandra Denise Major, December 30th. She was 20 when she went missing, December 24th in 1982. She was actually unidentified until 2012. Her family watched a documentary on Gary Ridgway, and they went, Sandra was around there that time, wasn't she? And so they gave, they specifically called up, like, King County Sheriff's Department and were like, we would like to offer up our DNA and they were able to compare it and she was positively identified. Hmm. That's terrible. You're just watching a documentary. You're watching a documentary about a serial killer and you're like, 
Dad, didn't you say that Aunt Denise used to live in Seattle before she went missing? You know what? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Oh, my God. Brutal, right? Yes. So John Douglas updates his initial profile because he had sent one to the task force when they were just calling back and forth. And he actually made himself officially available to the task force in January of 1986. That's because he had gotten like really sick. Mm. What's the word? I can't remember the name of the illness. Gosh, it's the one. uh, Unimportant. (laughs) I didn't write it down. I was going to say polio. I usually go for polio. No, no, no. no. It's uh, (laughs) one of those illnesses that you can get when you live in close contact with people in college. Remember we had to get a shot for it. Is it like mono or something? It's uh, that's it's not mono, but it's one of those. It starts with an M. Okay. But yeah, he had gotten uh, that illness, and he had been sick for a while. So he was fully recovered in January of '86. So he came over, um, and that was good because they found Jane Doe seventeen, who was between the age of fourteen and eighteen years old. They assumed be by the age of her bones that she'd been missing from eighty to eighty four. She's still one of the young women we don't have a positive ID for. 80 to 84. Wow. Which lends to the belief that this started before 82. Yeah. Which is another reason why I don't believe his little bull crap about <laughs> my, my wife cheated on me. That's why <laughs> I, I, I just had to start killing people. I was like, brah, you were assaulting people well before then. As soon as you were able to, you were doing it. Exactly. <laughs> The second profile for the Green River Killer was pretty close to the first, though. Douglas was sure the killer was in good physical shape, an outdoorsman, but he also drank and smoked. Uh, he said this guy was not neat. He'd be nocturnal, drive a very conservative vehicle. Souvenirs and trophies were very important to him, as well as newspaper clippings about the murders. Both allowed him to relive the thrill. Douglas was sure he was in his mid-20s to 30s, and that his homicides reflected a certain rage and anger that meant he was never going to stop. Mm. Now, around this time, they had some new suspects. Inger Rasmussen, an elderly man who had a barn full of pictures of women uh, and also posted advertisements trying to get women to come live with him. They all thought he was a total creep, but definitely not strong enough to carry corpses up and down hills. (laughs) Their second suspect was Gary Ridgway, who had claimed he'd only choked a girl because she bit him while he was being serviced. Right, right. At the time, they believed that the killer had a job that required him to visit the dump sites or drive by them. And Ridgeway's job at Kenworth Trucking wasn't far off, but it didn't require him to travel. Right, yeah, because he had pointed out to that one girl, I was like, hey, that's where I work at. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Also, they couldn't see someone with a full-time job stalking women and planning this out so intensely. See, one of the things they thought was that this was being planned out, but Gary later explained that it was not planned out at all. It was very impulsive. It's very weird. Not they should mention that. Like, you got a full-time job. You got a wife. Yeah, he had a lot going on. Like, how do you find time for this stuff? How do you time? Listen, (laughs) I just want to talk to you. How do you find time to murder? That's my, like my number one question. How do you Right, he really time? was doing a lot, which is why he wasn't killing as much with Judith. Yeah. But he's not married to Judith yet. Right, 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 yeah. So he's still in his third wife now? Yes. They're dating. Yeah, okay. And they live together by Okay, now. okay. And he had a kid. Mm-hmm. Now, he was really hanging out with his kid. 
So these had to have been happening like Monday through Friday if he was seeing his son every weekend and they were going to things and fixing toys and cars and stuff. Yeah. But they decided to pass on Gary Ridgway as a suspect temporarily because they were like, he's too busy to be doing all this. Also, he did pass a lie detector test. They decide to fixate on this guy named Barney Tickenborg. He was middle-aged, he was obsessed with killing dogs, and he would do it in many different ways, like traps, rifles, garrotes, knives, ice picks. Several people had actually called the police on Barney Tickenberg and were like, are you sure he's not the Green River (laughs) Killer? In fact, he had even inadvertently worked beside a police informant at a cement mixing job. And the police were like, hey, you worked with that guy. Can you tell us about him? And so the informant was like, listen, he's strong, athletic. He spends all his free time in the woods. He loves to kill things and he loves to talk about killing things. In fact, Tickenborg had even shown the informant his library full of books and magazines about the human anatomy and how to kill people. Tickenborg also visited a lot of sex workers. So they decided to spend most of January interviewing everyone he knew. And on February 6, 1986, the FBI and the task force went to the Tickenborg house, which was a block from the Pack Highway. Hmm. they'd already picked Barney up on his way home from work. He had been getting a ride home from his boss and they like ordered him out of the car. Oh, damn. He was questioned for hours. The police picked up every bloodstained item in his house to try and test it. It was eventually proven that Tickenborg was just a weird guy, but he wasn't a murderer. No, he just knew how to kill people. And, you know, (laughs) he just like wants to read about it, but he doesn't know how to do it. Right. Okay. I I guess he's a he's a hobbyist. I guess so. Oh, no. In the meantime, March 27th, 1986, brought the discovery of Tracy Winston. She was 19 and had been missing since September 12th, 1983. She wouldn't be identified for another 16 years. And that's because her mandible was missing and so were all of her teeth. Mm. The leader of the task force, Frank Adamson, was just facing a lot of backlash. And he was tired. He would go on to run it until January 1987. But even as early as March of 86, he knew he knew that his time was coming to mm. an end. Uh, spring brought the discovery of Maureen Sufini, who had been missing since September of 1983. She was found on May 2nd. Her bones were withered and south of the juncture at Highway 18 and Highway 90. June 14th, Kimberly Nelson was found near I-90. She was 21 years old when she'd gone missing November 1st, 1983. Heartbreakingly, her father died a few months before she was positively ID'd. And then her sister had a nervous breakdown after so much grief in such a short amount of time. And I understand, Miss Nelson, because I've been there. The end of June brought the discovery of Cindy Ann Smith, 17, missing since March 21st, 1984. Probably the only good thing that happened in 1986 was that women had stopped going missing from the area. And it was definitely a sign that the Green River Killer had slowed down or stopped or moved on. And then just like that, they stopped finding bodies, too. At the end of 1986, it was decided the task force would be downsized. 25% of the crew was sent to different departments. Adamson was given the bad news and he knew that that meant he was going to be next. His boss actually called him in and went, listen, we got a job. You could be a major in Maple Valley. 
and you could like leave a major you say whoa i mean so when he told his boss he's like yeah i'll go to the new precinct his boss is like you made the right choice Mm -hmm. pretty much implying that uh if you didn't take this job you were gonna lose your other one yeah so they brought in uh jim pompey to take over the now slightly smaller task force he hadn't kept up with all the details And so he was kind of fresh eyes. There was this sort of hope that the killings would stop and the task force would just disappear and everybody would just forget what had happened. Now, Jim Pompey saw a name pop up over and over in their system, and he just couldn't let it go. First, there was this time this guy guy got arrested for picking up a prostitute and she was actually a cop. This was the same guy who'd gone parking with Kelly Kay McGinnis and she'd never been seen. The same man who admitted to strangling Penny Bristow after she bit him. The same man that Jim Doyen had talked to in front of the KFC where many of the women who had gone missing liked to hang out. The same man who drove old pickup jucks and matched the description of every single witness who described the Green River Killer. Like, it's so surprising how he wasn't caught earlier. <laughs> well, the Gary Ridgeway. And they knew he was happily married, had a young son, and in 1984 he passed a polygraph test. He didn't fit the parameters of the original profile. Pompey was like, I don't care. We're going to put him under surveillance. Mm-hmm. They submitted evidence for a search warrant for Gary Ridgway's house. And on April 8th, 1987, they picked him up. This was everything. It was a search warrant for his car, his father's car, his wife's car, as well as his house and his locker at Kenworth Trucking. They also demanded hair samples from Ridgway. And this is also when he gave the saliva sample that would eventually get him caught. Mm. It would take weeks before they got the results of the initial samples that they took from his house. Weirdly enough, Gary didn't threaten to sue the police officers, which is what most of the previous suspects did. Afterward, he just went back to normal. Like, they kept him under surveillance. He was, he was, however, kind of pissed off that his coworkers started calling him Green River Gary. <laughs> well, sir, don't be dumping bodies in the Green River. Well, it's kind of thing I wonder that if maybe he wasn't getting the attention he wanted. What you got? You got. He wanted the attention of being a murderer, of being someone who controlled women, oh, not being made fun of. Them. Not being made fun of by his coworkers. Well, I'm sorry, sir, but if you were my coworker, I'd make fun of you too. <laughs> well, in 1987, they only discovered the remains of one woman, Cindy Ann Smith, 17, when she went missing in March of 1984. She was found on June 27th, 1987, off of Highway 18 near Green River Community College. Uh, James Pompey didn't actually get to be task uh, force leader for very long because he went diving in 1987 and he resurfaced too quickly and died from a pulmonary embolism. Why do y'all do that? Wait, just wait. Lieutenant Greg Boyle took over temporarily and then it was given to Bobby Evans in 1987. Uh, the task force actually had other losses, too. Several detectives got leukemia during this time period and had to leave. Others had heart problems. One was just super depressed and had a like breakdown and was like, I'm done being a police officer forever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Over the course of this five-year investigation, it took a toll on the people trying to find him. And then it was 1988. They discovered Deborah Lorraine Estes. She was 15 when she'd been missing, and she'd been gone for nearly six years. Oh, wow. She was found on the 200 block of South 346th Street where they were going to be building an apartment complex. Now, they had started construction there in 1982. And they were getting around to the point of, I guess, adding a, what's the word? A playground? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when they went to dig the holes to put the swings in, 
they found a hole with skeletal remains. Uh, originally, they had to they they immediately took her body to the ME and we were like, we need to know, has she been there since 1982, or was she put here more recently, or put here? Because originally, when I guess they raised the entire area, they flattened it. Right. They also just dropped a load of dirt on the spot where they were going to build. Oh, okay. So they were worried about whether she had been put in the truck, mm-hmm. but it was determined that she died in 1982. So that was her initial spot where they, her body was dumped. Okay. Her family had, they really tried like going so far as to appear on Oprah January of 88, like months before they find her. And they were asking for any information they could find. Deborah's mom was like, listen, if we can't get her home, maybe she'll be the one to break the case. Mm-hmm. This exploded the possibility of murderers, though, because over a six year period, there had been hundreds of laborers, truck drivers, electricians and plumbers on the site. They had to get a master list of all the contractors and begin working their way through it, connecting them to any of the potential women on the list, testing the paint chips found on her clothing. They discovered it was a very expensive paint called Imran, manufactured by DuPont, used on commercial vehicles. And if you remember, someone we talk about painted commercial vehicles for his entire career. Mm, I don't remember. Yeah. Well, the first TV show about Gary Ridgway was released December 7th, 1988. It was called Manhunt, A Chance to End the Nightmare. And this was kind of the task force last ditch effort to try and find some information. They talked to everybody, families of the murder victims, the FBI, all the detectives. Mm-hmm. They got 16,000 phone calls that night. And by the end of the week, they had 2,000 new suspects. Nice. Lovely. They found Andrea. Well, here's the problem. No, it, it didn't help at all. What? They already have the person in their records, and they've interviewed him now three times. But no, he might not be the guy you're talking about. <laughs> he, there are other people out there. You gotta go through the whole world, okay? Well, they find Andrea Marie Childer on October 9th, 1989, buried near the South Airport dump site. She had been 17 when she went missing April 14th, 1982. Hmm. Which lets us know that he's been rotating these dump sites. She probably was one of the first people to be left near the airport. Oh. That's what I'm saying. This is so planned out. So... Did this mean he had a list of potential places he could drop the bodies? Right, yeah. And he never put one, more than one there at a given time? Exactly. Just, wow. It's just that you guys found him at this one spot. And then you, you right, stayed there for a while. Right, they end up doing the searching and then they keep finding more near there. Yeah. But they all come from like different time periods. Yeah, it's not like he's cha- he's not changing them while you're searching for no, them. No, he's, he's like rotating from spot to spot. As he's killing them. It's weird. Yeah. Well, the task force fixated on a guy named Bill Stevens. He had a mask kind of like Ridgeway, but ultimately he wasn't the killer. The guy was a liar who pretended to be different important jobs and he'd try and impress sex workers. It was weird. Uh, weird flex, but okay. 
1990 came. The task force was on the verge of just being completely cut. Uh, most of the manpower and the money got pulled back into the major crime unit. Uh, it was pared down to 17 people. Mm. By 1990, they had spent $15 million. Uh, the public looked at it like they had wasted a lot of money. The thing is, this task force did have some pretty one like great detectives. I mean, literally, it had the creators of the behavior science unit who wrote the book on profiling right. attached to this. In fact, uh, one of the special agents from the FBI, his name was Paul Lindsay, who had come on in 1986 and really believed that they could find the Green River Killer, ended up telling Frank Adamson, Captain, I am humbled. Hmm. Just like, we're the best of the best and we're at a loss. Dave Reichert, who had been there since the beginning as a young detective, now had lines on his face and gray hair. Some of the original task force had just retired, many of them just losing the will to keep fighting. I, I kind of had no sympathy for them. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I feel bad that y'all spent this like all this time like searching for this person that you've already interviewed like three different times. Well, it's rough. I see because I don't feel like this is the same thing as what happened with um, the Yorkshire Ripper. I guess what I keep thinking of because one, they also interviewed the Yorkshire Ripper like nine times. Yeah, but like it, it was out of Dave Records. Like he didn't know how polygraph testing works. It wasn't his fault that it was done wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so they bring went off the belief one. that he had passed. Mm-hmm. And back then, we put a lot more weight into polygraph testing than we do now. This is true, yeah. So they were like, oh, this guy passed the test. He's just a weirdo. Um, Let's test him again. Just and he years. has a history of dealing of, of dealing with sex workers, but this is an area, because of where the airport is, that has a lot of sex workers. And we've interviewed a lot of men who, inter- you know what I mean? So... I understand, but I... Everybody was really feeling kind of demoralized because in the past 18 months, all of their top suspects had been cleared, except for Gary Ridgway. Uh, they found Marta Reeves, September of 1990. She'd actually gone missing in 1990 as well. And, like, it's really interesting because in the Green River Running book, I feel like Ann Rule kind of glossed over this. But this was the first, like, fresh kill. 1990, yeah. In, like, years. Since, like, 84. He killed... He She went missing in 1990, and he killed her in 1990. And he, that meant he was back on his bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Marta ha- was 36. She's also one of the older victims. Because normally, he had a thing for teenagers. Mm-hmm. Uh, she called actually the the night that she went missing. She called her husband and asked for money. He did not. He declined because she had a serious cocaine problem and they were separated. Uh, she said kind of sadly, OK, then I'll have to work all night. Her husband received a letter in the mail about a month later. It had her driver's license in it. It's very common to if you find somebody's wallet or driver's license, you put it in the mail and you deliver it back to their house. Mm-hmm, right. So there's no guarantee that that came from Gary Ridgway, but he did go to the police with it. And by the time they tried finger, it had been touched like 12 different times. They couldn't get a clear print to put it through the, the database anyway. She was found ultimately near Highway 410, one of his favorite spots. 
Over the next couple years, they find Roberta Hayes on September 11th, 1991, missing since 87. Patricia Barksack on February 3rd, 1993, missing since October of 86. Patricia Yellowrobe in August of 1998, missing since January of 1998. Another one in the same year. Mm-hmm. Just proof that he hadn't stopped, but he had slowed down so much that they weren't gaining any new information about the crime. Right. And then we came to 2001. Gary's secure. He's like, I fooled these cops. They're bums. I passed that polygraph test, but if they pick me up again, I won't take it again because, you know, maybe uh, we won't tempt fate. Yeah. That's why I said test them again. Test them again. <laughs> On the surface, the task force was gone. But in reality, it was kind of like just waiting. Now, Frank Adamson had moved to the new criminal justice center south of the airport, and he was chief of criminal investigation unit. Bob Keppel got a doctorate, wrote a couple books, taught a course called Homicide at the University of Washington. It was wildly popular. Hmm. Dave Riker continued to move up through the ranks. Uh, When the police chief in King County decided to move on to the suburbs, they actually offered the job of police chief to Adamson, but he passed on it. Dave was almost 50, and... He decided he wanted to be police chief of King County. Um, in fact, Ann Rule actually helped him campaign to get the job. Nice. So one of the main cops on the ground with the Green River Task Force meant that it wasn't over. <laughs> so DNA sequencing had come a long time in a decade or so. Uh, and they still had those hair and saliva samples. So they had this new technique. And... It had been developed in 1996 and the state had started running evidence through the new system with the new DNA evidence. But with the way the backlog, Mm -hmm. there was just a tremendous backlog. So it would take five years before Gary Ridgway's sample that he gave to get properly sequenced and put in the system. Right. Yeah. In the meantime, though, Dave's like, listen, we're going to go through all the old evidence. And he sends it to uh, Beverly Himmick, who is part of the Washington state patrol crime lab. And they rinse all the fingernails of the victims to look for trace evidence. They swab any ligature marks that they had for cellular, you know, data. This is actually probably the grossest detail in the whole thing. So they still had pubic hair from a victim. And when they went and looked at it under a microscope, there were still a couple of sperm cells. What? Clinging to a piece of hair. How? What? They found three different good bits of DNA from three different women, three different victims. And then they had that sequenced DNA profile Mm -hmm. from Gary Ridgway and all three victims matched. Oh, oh, oh they're getting somewhere. <laughs> they came down on him hard. <laughs> he was 52 and still arrogant as ever. Uh, he was charged with Marsha Chapman, Opal Mills, Cynthia Hines, and Carol Ann Christensen on November 30th, 2001. Mm. There was a lot of triumph in Washington State. Uh, Ann Rule said in her book that she saved the voicemail she got from Dave Reichert, which was him calling and yelling into the phone. We've arrested the Green River Killer. (laughs) I just love that. I would do the same. 
Oh my God. Yes. Now, I want to let you know how much time passed. So, Anne Rule has written a lot of books mm -hmm. and she was involved with kind of talking to the people who worked the Green River case from 1982 and on. And the time period from the time that first murder happened to the time they caught him, mm. she wrote 19 books mm. about different cases. That's a, a lot of books. It had really been a long time for a lot of people, but it wasn't over yet. Now, the ta task force is like, no, 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 no. He's responsible for way more than four. Mm-hmm. So now they're like, task force reanimated. They pull everybody back. <laughs> they pour over every single detail they have about Ridgeway, discovering discrepancies from his prior testimony that hadn't seemed back Im important back then. Like him lying about the fact that his first wife wasn't a skinny blonde. Really, she had been overweight and a brunette, mm. and her weight loss had triggered his insecurities. He had a weird thing about blondes. He like in a real creepy way. In one of the interviews I read from him, he talked about how blondes were special. Gross. So then the task force began just the awful task of interviewing everyone who had known Gary Ridgeway ever or worked with him ever. <laughs> Well, Gary, yeah, he seemed a little weird, but, you know, he's just an every, everyday guy. Well, no, actually, one of his former coworkers uh, recounted a story where he had given her a ride home and they were talking about the case. And he kept asking her, like, oh, they they deserve what happened to them, those uh, prostitutes. Uh, and you'd never be a prostitute, would you? And she realized in hindsight, like, holy hell, I guess I answered his questions correctly. Yeah. Would he have killed me? If I had told him that I would consider being a prostitute. Anybody would. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Everybody's got a price. I feel like everybody's got a price. That's just me, though, personally. Yes. Oh, my God. I remember them talking about, what was her name? China? Yeah. That like, and they were like, so-and-so paid her $50,000 to be in the threesome with them. I'm like, That's a lot of money. That's more than most people make a year. <laughs> to go be with T.I. and Ty. Shh. That's good money. Oh, my God. And tax-free? Yes. Just saying. Everybody's got a price. But regardless, one of, yeah, one of his coworkers, he, like, gave her a ride home and, like, was real creepy. And she was just like, I'm not going to take a ride from Gary anymore. Good choice. Good choice. <laughs> um, they learned about a lot of stuff. Uh, they, real, they learned the real reason his marriage has failed and because he tried to choke her several times. And interviewing his second wife, that's when they learned about all the different places that he liked to go and have sex with and mm. how those ended up being places he eventually dumped the bodies. Mm -hmm, they interviewed mm -hmm. Judith as well, and she was completely none the wiser, super blindsided. They spent hours upon hours talking to his son, Chad, and that's how they learned that Gary had maintained the facade of being like a good father. They actually originally placed him in an ultra security cell in King County Jail so that guards could watch him 24-7. They were worried that he might end himself. Uh, his mugshot was on the cover of every newspaper in North America, and Ann Rule didn't remember ever meeting him. But apparently, Gary Ridgway knew Ann and knew that Ann was looking into his case because her daughter Leslie called her the next day, December 1st, and said he was at a book signing. So Bro. apparently, <laughs> Leslie told her mom that he'd show up 
didn't pick up a book, didn't buy anything. And he would just stare at Anne the entire time. It, like it bothered her and bothered her so much that she had told her there was a weird guy here who was staring at you. But Anne was just like, this is what celebrity it, yeah, is. Yeah, it's part of being a celebrity, yeah. Apparently, Leslie had also seen him at some of her mom's speaking engagements, too. So she had been keeping an eye out for this weird guy. One of those speaking engagements, Anne said, no one knows who the Green River Killer is or what he looks like. For all I know, he could be sitting here tonight. And he was. Come on. Because he wanted to know what she knew about him. Talk about a creepy situation. Yeah. Oh, my God. They went back. They looked over all the old crime scenes with new crime texts. Uh, there were some they couldn't get to because they had been built on or paved over. They completely ripped apart the Ridgeway house. He was formally charged with four murders on December 5th. And on December 8th, the governor allocated $500,000 for DNA testing the other 45 victims to see if they could be connected to him too. Captain Bruce Kalen took over the task force. Uh, they began quietly buying all of his old trucks that they could find. A lot of them were scrapped and, you know, pushed in little squares. Mm -hmm. But they did find a few. In his house, they also cataloged every bead, every piece of jewelry that they could find. It belonged to them now. Uh, the task force got to move into a fancy new building in the beginning of March in 2002. Yay, not one that's falling apart. Awesome. Now there was funding to try and connect him to these 48 murders at the time. The 14 investigators kept all this information close to their chest, though. The information they were sorting through was monumental, and they didn't want any of this getting out. Mm -hmm. They'd actually recovered his work overalls from his job, and those paint specs that they had found, they found, they had found paint specs on eight different people, and they were able to confirm Wendy Caulfield had that same paint on her, Deborah Estes, Deborah Bonner. So they charged him with those murders on March 27th. Mm. Nice. Now, interestingly enough, normally with the passage of time, it makes it harder to make to fix things. But because forensic capabilities had improved so greatly in this like 15 year time period, mm -hmm. this was actually better for them. And just all I can say is thank God that Dame Reichert and Dick Krask were as meticulous as they were with the the, the crime scenes. Because there's a lot of cases that got blundered in the 80s and 70s. And just running over crime Because scenes. people just walked through the crime scenes and messed them all up. Right, right. Like there was a situation at the, the river with those first three bodies mm -hmm. where Dick Krask actually noticed that they had put the bodies in the wrong backs. Like the names were messed up. And he was like, stop, stop, stop. Mm. We got to redo this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> So, like, at least the two of them had been so meticulous because now we had all this evidence to go retest again. Mm -hmm. So they were moving towards having a trial in 2004. Of course, we never get to a trial. There right. was a deal negotiated on June 13th, 2003, that said if they agreed not to seek a death penalty against him, he would plead guilty to all the homicides in King County, the ones the police knew about and the ones they didn't. <laughs> Implying... There's some you don't know about. Now, something must have happened with that deal because originally they said it didn't go through, but there were four more sets of remains that were found in 2003. Pammy Annette Avent, she's found on August 16th, 2003, 15, when she went missing in 83. 
the woman currently known as Jane Doe B20, found on August 21st, 2003. April Butram found August 30th. She'd been missing since August 18th, 1983. Hmm. Now, the task force does something here that is completely off the wall. See, when someone's in prison, everything they do is being logged. Right. Other prisoners are watching. Guards are watching. Information gets leaked. Mm -hmm. People talk about things. The task force didn't want that. So what they did was they pretty much told the governor, we're going to keep him here at the building where the task force is. He'll be under armed guards. They literally made a cell for him at the office of the Green River Task Force. That's his prison. They made their own prison for him. Huh. They kept him living down the hall from where they were investigating him 24 hours a day. And they would just show up and come talk to him and kind of mess with him. Like, just be like, all right, time for an interview. It's like middle of the night. Oh, my God. Uh, When he finally started talking, though, he started talking a lot. He spoke to psychiatrists, FBI agents, homicide detectives. He was almost like happy about the attention. He went out with the investigators and began showing them where bodies were and connecting the dots that they didn't have fully connected. Hmm. On September 26, 2003, he even alerted them to the body of Marie Malver, the one that started them looking into him from the beginning. Hmm. When she'd been the one who was seen getting into his crappy, crappy van, little truck on April 30th, 1983. He was like, yeah, yeah, you were right. I, I did kill her. Yeah, we know. <laughs> well, oh, God. so interestingly enough, while Ridgeway enjoyed the attention, sometimes they'd find a detail or something on a map and they'd pull him out of bed and cuff him and take him out in like the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Over the course of the interviews, he came clean to all 48 murders, specifically those in King County, because that was the deal that they made. And as I said last week, there is a theory that he has other victims in other areas. But since he very desperately wants to stay alive, he's not going to say anything. Right. Now, Ridgway claimed that he would kill whenever he got angry. These were never premeditated murders. And he blamed those rages on the women around him, like the women at his job getting raises or promotions when he didn't or when he would have to pay child support for his son. Which side note, you got to pay child support every month, buddy. So once a month, you just get mad and go on a random killing spree. Basically. Um, or like he got mad when he, they bought the house and he said that the... uh. The sellers were so cheap that they had taken all the light bulbs out of the house. Mm. Well, he said he would get so angry that he couldn't sleep and he had to just go out and relieve the pressure. And now, you know how he relieved the pressure? No, this is a lie that he told himself yeah. because he kept telling the investigators over and over. All I wanted to do was have sex with them and kill them. He didn't remember any of the women's faces, but he knew in startling detail everywhere that he had dropped a body. He worked through years of memories with them. He talked about keeping toys in his car so the victims would be disarmed. He admitted to bringing some of them back to the house, mm-hmm. showing them his son's room. And actually, he, and that's what he says, not premeditated, but he learned that uh, when you kill someone, sometimes their bladder goes. <laughs> so he would make the women go to the bathroom before. So that they had an empty bladder so that when he murdered them, it wouldn't make a mess on his bed. Um, 
smart, I guess. He also discovered through trial and error that uh, if they were having sex in doggy style, that was the best way to kill them. Oh, so you can choke them from behind. Right. Okay, he would yeah. say, oh, I heard somebody if they were outside and the girl would look up and mm-hmm. he would reach over and grab her behind the neck and choke her out. Oh. Mm. Uh, or if they were near the airport and an airplane went overhead and the girl looked up, that would be the moment he'd grab her. Uh, God. Uh, one of the things that I was really intrigued by is that usually killers like this have a racial preference, a physical preference for their victims. Mm-hmm. And like, while I said he didn't have like a thing he really liked blondes. He only killed like five. Um, he really didn't have any preference for his victims because they had virtually no meaning to him. They were just a means to an end. They were blank voids in his memory. He admitted that choking them was more rewarding than shooting them, though he did threaten them with guns. These are also the interviews where he references being cuckolded by his wife. And like I said, I looked far and wide for any proof that this happened outside of Gary Ridgway's mind. The investigators didn't believe it either because he had many consensual girlfriends while he was doing this between 1982 and 84. Yeah. No one was cheating on you or cuckolding you then, buddy. <laughs> no. no. Now, partially through these interviews, he starts mentioning the other Gary. And so he starts talking about... Oh, God. I know. (laughs) I'm sorry. Oh, God. Come on. He starts talking about the other Gary who's stronger and angrier. And this Gary's mad because the police have complete control over him. And the old Gary would talk about murdering. And the new Gary said he never had any sex with corpses. Now, they weren't sure if he was trying to present himself as being mentally ill. But regardless, he was telling them the facts. Mm. And that's all that mattered to them. This is also when he told him that that jewelry that they had been looking for, his trophies, he had left those things at the airport and also at his job. So he would leave pieces of jewelry in the bathrooms and then he would get like a little high whenever he would see the women at his job wearing those pieces. And that kept them out of his house. Come on. Come on. He also admitted that he hated how much control women had over him, and he always hated it. Oh, my God. Shut up. (laughs) He told the police how exhausting it was to have to wear gloves and change his shoes or tires all the time so that they wouldn't be able to find him. Well, don't do it. (laughs) The real clincher, though, was his interviews with Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole. She got him to talk about his childhood. Now, she intrigued him by saying she went in to talk to him, and she said, Listen, the FBI doesn't care about how many bodies a person has. Like, there's plenty of crimes we don't interject into. Mm. She said, I need to go through a verification process with you to see if you're worth my time. Mm. He's like, okay. She's like, the verification process is you got to tell me about your childhood. So she walked. So Gary walked her through a lot of the things we talked about last week. Right. He told Dr. O'Toole that he felt his victims' bodies belonged to him as long as they weren't discovered. And he admitted to all sorts of sexual compulsions. Do you know what frauderism is? Because I didn't hear that word before. Frauderism? Frauderism. No, I have no idea. Well, apparently this started when he was young. Frauderism is when you rub your genitals on somebody else without their consent. I think I have heard of this. New word for Brittany. 
Never heard of that in my life. <clears throat> he also would expose himself to people when he was younger. He stalked women. That started when he was 12. Voyeurism, rape, murder for sexual release. And yes, he absolutely admitted straight up to Dr. O'Toole necrophilia. He even discussed how he had moved skeletons to Oregon so that the police wouldn't find their bodies and wouldn't take them from him. Oh, his poor toys. He didn't take his toys away. Now, Dr. O'Toole was the one who zeroed in on how awful Gary's relationship with his mother was and how those baths that creeped us out Mm -hmm. had been very stimulating for Gary and that he would get a heart on while she was cleaning him. And he would see his one. He looked at his mom like she was one of the women in like the nude magazines that mm. he would look at, and that he would like peek at her and like sneak looks at her if she leaned down. Like he would like look through her shirt. That when she measured him for clothes, mm-hmm. he would get turned on. And see, that's why one of the things that I like struggle with is that story. That he told her about how his mom used to tell them stories about how when she would measure men at the uh, department store, she could like see their hard-ons. I'm like, is this you projecting? Yes. Oh, my God. Makes so much sense. He insisted, though. He never touched his mother. But that seeing her nude made him want to touch other women. And that started when he was 10. He said he never resented his mother, but he did want to stab her. And he started stalking women at 12 years old and that he had necrophilia desires long before he ever actually did it. Hmm. He pled guilty officially on November 5th, 2003, and he was given 48 consecutive life sentences on December 18th, 2003. They would find one more victim, December 21st, 2010. Her name was Rebecca Marrero. She was 20. When she went missing December 3rd, 1982, Becky had left her son with her mom and said, and like made a joke saying she was going away for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, her mom kind of took her seriously and didn't report her missing until 1984. Um, her skull was found at the bottom of a 200 foot ravine, which is interesting because in his interviews, Gary talked about wanting to be able to find one of those bottomless mines that they say are in Washington. So perhaps he thought he had gotten rid of Becky by throwing her into the ravine. They added one more life sentence to his uh, 48 (laughs) just after his 62nd birthday. Oh my God. And so what else happened to the other people involved in this case? Well, Dave Reichert went on to be the U.S. representative to Washington's 8th Congressional District from 2005 to 2019. He is now retired. Uh, Sue Peters took some time off, Mm. went to Africa on a safari in 2004. Then she came back and began trying to find the identities of the unknown victims. She, along with Detective Danny Gullah, created a program called the Highway Intelligence Team, HIT. And that team goes and checks on the working girls near the SeaTac Strip. Not to arrest them, but to let them know they are resources and that they're there to help. Uh, They have been able to help women. They've had people call them in the middle of the night. Uh, They also log these women's scars and dental records. Smart. Very smart. Uh, When some of the young women ask Sue Peters why, she says, so if something like this happens again, we can find you. Yeah. Randy Mullinax ran a seminar for law enforcement agencies around the country to teach them about what they learned about the Green River Killer. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Bob Gebo, Ed Streitinger, and Kevin O'Keefe went back to Seattle PD. Frank Adamson retired. Richard Krask retired. Ben Colwell retired. <laughs> Medical examiner Donald Rea retired. He lives on an island where he learns about boat murder <laughs> motors and stuff. Oh, nice. Big Bill Haglin worked identifying bodies in foreign countries until he died in 2021. Along with Bill, Danny Nolan, Paul Smith, Ralph Mathal- McAllister, Kim Pompey, Jim, sorry, I said Kim, Jim Pompey, Dr. John Berberich, and Tony Zagara all died uh, after this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt Haney became chief of police on Bainbridge Island in Washington. Mm. Uh, Robert Keppel was a professor in criminology until his death this year in June of 2021. Uh, Chad Ridgway is a Marine. Uh, most of the victims and Gary's ex-wives and anyone who had anything to do with him in that vein have no interest in being involved in anything. Good. Smart. Like I told you last time, Judy has finally made it to a place where she can be in a relationship and trust people again. Right. Yeah. She's dating again. This right. is great. Yeah. She has a boyfriend named David. Yay, Judith. Yes. Um, and Gary is serving his sentence in Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. Mm-hmm. He will never be released. Yay. And there is the story of Gary Ridgway. Look at that. That was a good one. And you finished it on our 40th episode. I so did. I, that was the goal. Yeah. But now you see why I couldn't do it in one. <laughs> no, 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 no. That, that just cut my whole part out. Just You just talked the whole episode. Go right ahead. <laughs> We're an hour and 45 minutes right now. Oh, my God. Never mind. <laughs> What did you want to talk about this week? Oh, well, you see. This week, mm-hmm. in Brian's world. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, Halloween's over. Yeah. Everybody, hope everybody had their, got their festivities out of their system. Like, I mean, whatever. You enjoyed yourselves. Um, and then you celebrated the next day. Which would be the Day of the Dead, if you do celebrate Day of the Dead. Someone um, actually asked me that on my live the other day. They were like, do you celebrate the Day of the Dead? And I was like, well, I'm not Mexican. So that would be cultural appropriation. Mm. But I appreciate that you want people to know more about it. This is true. I Yeah, it's a great day. I It's really cool. And I, if someone invited me to be a part of it, I absolutely would go. Oh, yeah, 100%. But you just can't be doing it by yourself. Yeah, no, 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 no. Can't be Columbusing people's cultural... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> events we no. just don't do that Mm-mm. that's like how we do it for i guess uh saint patrick's day we or a lot of people do it. like you know how, you know what i mean american version of saint patrick's day isn't even it's like, not real it's not <laughs> it's like what we do for may day we're just like what yeah. or no single de mayo they're like yeah this is a, a totally celebrating a battle in mexico drunk time we just any at any point Americans try to drink. Anytime we can get drunk, we do for it. fun. It's super weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like for like the that I'm pretty sure. I I definitely cried watching Coco. Oh, that's a great one. And then definitely cried watching the Book of Life too. I don't think I watched that one. It's a good movie. It's a great one. I don't care. They're, they're cartoons. I don't care. I so watch them. We all watch anime. Cartoons are good. Yeah. Anyway, 
<laughs> Even though the day is over, Halloween is still in our hearts. Mm-hmm. Today, bring you a tale brought to us by one of our patrons. Ooh. Um, Maggie. Oh, is this what Maggie and you were talking about yeah, in the yeah, Discord? Yeah. yeah, and I was like, if I find some stuff about it, I'll definitely cover it. Oh, cool. She's going to be so hyped. Yeah. And no, this is like, a, what, second shout out for her? Right, right. Listen, <laughs> that's what you got to be. You, you want shout outs? Be it. Become a patron. Become a patron. We'll talk about you all the time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. Hi, Maggie. Um, I told you I'd use it, but so I'm using it today. Nice. Um, I love getting stories from people, by the way. Hint, hint. Just in, just in case. <laughs> so this is the story of uh, the Point Lookout Lighthouse, which may be haunted. Well, I'm pretty sure it is haunted. Didn't you say something about it being the most haunted lighthouse in America? It is the most haunted lighthouse in America, which is apparently a thing. I was going to say, I didn't know that there were like a list of yeah. haunted lighthouses. You're never going to get me into a lighthouse because I'm not going up 12 flights of steps. Look, I kind of wanted to be like a lighthouse keeper. <sighs> then you'd be good at going up the steps. But yeah. when you tried to climb the steps to get up here, you were winded. Just look. <laughs> <laughs> Your steps are like steep, okay? They are, aren't they? They're freaking steep. And I cannot do... I can't. <laughs> Leg day. <sighs> All the steps in old buildings are like that, which is the same way they are in lighthouses. Well, I'd probably grow up doing that, so it's, it's different. All righty. I'd be a young lighthouse keeper. Anyway. <laughs> so this lighthouse is located inside of the Point Lookout State Park in uh, Scotland, Maryland. It was used uh, for, you know, most lighthouse things. You know, the worn ships of the, 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 the shore and stuff. Uh, you know, hiding underwater lighthouse, uh, under uh, hiding underwater utopias, or uh, being access to a utopia in the sky. Um, you know, there's always a man. There's always a lighthouse. You... Nothing. We just got a weird comment on our thing. On what thing? If someone thinks that Brian Laundry is gay, and that's why he killed Gabby Petito. Oh my god! We're not... Apparently, we're gonna start getting some of those kinds of emails. Through our website? No. Please don't. I don't want to hear none of that shit. Back to the lighthouse. Anyway. Cool. You, lo- anyway, that was a reference to freaking Bioshock. Uh, if, oh, no. If I'm not going to get those references, sir. <sighs> you played it before. Anyway, this lighthouse looks cool. Uh, mm-hmm. It's sticking out of a one and a half story house. Ooh. Uh, it's, it's awesome looking. It's uh, I think it's red right Yeah. Uh, it was constructed in 1830. Mm-hmm. Um, now I don't really dive deep into like, I don't, well, I don't like diving deep into the backgrounds of some things because I think, you know, it would be boring to talk about. What's it? The point? The, oh, the point lookout. Point lookout. Okay. Yep. Lighthouse. Uh, lighthouse. I just want to yeah. see what it looks out. Yeah. It's like you said it looks creepy. No, it looks cool because it's sticking out of a house. It's so tiny. Yeah. Okay, I would go to that one. Oh, it's cute. <laughs> when I think of a lighthouse, I think of those like impossibly tall buildings. Mm, I know what you mean. They're horrible. Sorry, keep interrupting me. I'm sorry. Oh, you're fine. <laughs> uh, anyways, but yeah, I don't like diving deep because I think it would be boring. And who wants to hear me talking about I'm boring things? We're going to talk about spooky things. Okay. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> This, like, there's a story 
is a funny story attached to this one, like the, the the history of you know of the keepers that were that lived there. Um, so there's this guy. His name was William Wood. Okay. Dude was known for being very clumsy, uh, so clumsy that he broke a lot of the mirrors in the in the lighthouse, uh, and his pay was withheld for a year. Wow. A year. Can you imagine not being paid? Like, you're working, but you're not getting paid for any of that. Because you broke so much stuff? Yes. Oh, that's awful. So, there's an incident where he allowed a cat to get into the lantern oil, one of the lantern oil barrels for the lighthouse. Mm -hmm. And that had to be replaced, which only added more to his debt. So, dude was just like, he's just... A very clumsy person. All <laughs> right. really bad. That's wild, though. Right? They're like, you owe us your year's pay. Like. Jesus. I think on the website I was reading it, it said his um his salary, like, what he actually, like, got paid was, like, $325, something like that, throughout his whole um thing as a keeper of Lighthouse. But that's with them deducting all the stuff? He yeah. He can't break in. Yeah. This is wild. Goodness. So, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember Maggie saying this in the, in the Discord, but uh, during the Civil War, uh, there was a lot of stuff built around this area. Well, Maryland area. Okay. Um, specifically, uh, Point Lookout. So, there was a hospital built on the, the coast, the Cape, the, whatever the point, wherever you want to call it, wherever this Point Lookout is at. There's a hospital, a medical hospital there built for Union soldiers. Okay. Uh, in 1862, Confederate soldiers were held at said hospital as well. Um, then a prison camp was built uh, to house uh, POW soldiers. Uh, this was named Camp Hoffman. Okay. There are also rumors that the keeper at the time kept prisoners there as well at, at the lighthouse. Okay. And when I say kept, I mean I I think they meant that they either like either the keeper or the assistant lighthouse keeper um were Confederate sympathizers. So they oh. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they would hide the, the soldiers in there. But on the same website I read this on is like, well, there are all like there were psychics that came in, and they said that there were Confederate prisoners that were being held there against their will. So, I don't. Who knows? Actually, I found that a lot of these stories that I'm going to read to you about the lighthouse and the uh, encounters that people have dealt with uh, are from, you know. The POW, the, the, the POW soldiers and you know, like oh, civil, the wow. civil, civil War soldiers Aww. are just haunting the place. <clears throat> so, apparently, this, this POW camp, it was only designed to hold 10,000 people, right? That's a lot of people. Yeah. But guess how many people they tried to, they actually fit in, fit in there? I don't know. Around 20,000 people. <laughs> so, very cramped, stuffed. Inside of that small living space. 
Okay. Um, living conditions were terrible. Yes, less than ideal. <laughs> uh, the author of the point. It's the book. It's a book. It's called Point Lookout: Prison Camp for Confederate for Confederates. Okay. Uh, the author is Edwin Warfield of Housing of Burning Sands and Freezing Cold and Rotten Tents. It is a story of senseless shootings by guards. It is a story of despair and death of 4,000 prisoners, many of whom could have been saved. <sighs> Indeed, terrible times to be had by a lot of people. Uh, give me a sec. Well, that was some that, that was some fun background information, right? Yeah, you, got some you know, war. lots of murder and death. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Just some a lot of bad prison. Uh oh. What? It stopped. It stopped where? I don't know. <laughs> hey, everybody. So we had some technical difficulties uh, this week during recording. So. Basically, whatever stories I was telling at the end got cut off. So here I am doing a solo, uh, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna like relay like, two stories for you about this lighthouse, and call it a day. And hopefully next week we won't have any issues with audio. So the first one, uh, first story comes from a ranger. At the lighthouse, at the actually at the park, his name is Kevin Hook, and this happened in September of 1999. On a fall evening, I was sitting in the living room in the small white house across the road from the fishing pier. The room faced south and towards the road that the soldiers used to march into Point Lookout. My dog Timber was nestled at my feet alongside a friend's dog. As we sat, the thermometer showed a stifling 100 degrees. My friend and I were talking quietly when the two dogs ran panic-stricken into the dining room. Both stood in the door and barked continuously into the oven-like room. My friend and I were completely dumbfounded. All of a sudden, the room turned bitter cold. Even though the thermometer still read 100 degrees, the room was stone cold in seconds. We could even see our breath when we exhaled. Exhaled. It remained cold for about 30 seconds and then returned to its sauna-like condition. What happened? Why did the room get so cold? Hook still doesn't know. So that was a, I guess, um, a, a ghost had just walked through the room and made it all nice and chilly, even though it was hot outside. Whatever. Anyway, <laughs> let me go to the second story I got. So this one is from the Point Lookout Lighthouse.com. And it is titled A Man on Lighthouse Porch and Spirit Lights. It was the winter of 1996. I was 19 years old. A friend of mine had just bought a car and we had gone for a day trip to St. Mary's County. Well, it was pretty aimless. We just kept driving that day away from Baltimore where we lived. 
We arrived in St. Mary's County around 4.30 that afternoon. We drove around and had dinner at a Greasy Spoon-style restaurant. We noticed signs for Paint, uh, Point Lookout State Park, and we decided to go check it out before heading home. We drove down the drive through the park. It was around 8 p.m., I guess. It was very cold, so cold it was hard to breathe. Our eyes would literally singe in the wind. We drove down to the end of the road where the point and the lighthouse were located. Now, I had never heard of the park's hauntings, so I was not looking to see or experience anything. We parked the car, and I suggested we walk over to the water and have a closer look at the lighthouse. We got out of the car to experience a steady, freezing wind that made our souls shiver. We walked over to look out over the bay. It was a beautiful sight on a cold winter evening. We turned and walked over to the fence at the lighthouse. We were right at the gate of the fence looking at the lighthouse when we noticed something peculiar. On the steps of the lighthouse, it appeared to be a man in a heavy coat sitting there staring at the ground. We sort of froze in our tracks because it startled us quite a bit since the lighthouse was completely dark. We stood there for probably 15 seconds when I suggested to my friend we leave. Just as we took our first step, the man raised his head and looked at us. Not wanting to seem suspicious, I said, Good evening to the man. Uh, the man suddenly rose to his feet and turned to the door. My friend and I watched as the man walked right through the door and disappeared into the porch. We stopped and looked for a minute to see if he was inside the porch, but he wasn't. I suddenly realized that he had just passed through the screen door and vanished on the other side. My friend was about as shocked as I was. We sat there for a couple minutes to no avail. We decided he had seen, we had seen a ghost. As we walked back to the car, we sat, there, we sat in the heat trying to give reason to what seemed to be an impossible experience. Then the next weird thing happened. As we were talking, my friend suddenly yelled, Look! I looked up and saw something that sent shivers up my spine. Something that looked like a ball of light was glowing inside the house and was illuminating the porch. We watched in amazement as the light flickered and then ceased. The whole light show lasted for about 10 seconds. We couldn't believe it. We must have stayed for another hour, but nothing happened, at, so we left. The next day, we went to the library and looked up books on the Point Lookout Lighthouse. We were surprised to see so many. I read everything I could on the hauntings and was spellbound. That Monday, we called the park and asked them if anyone was living in the lighthouse, and he told us no. We told them what happened, and they explained the haunting at the lighthouse. It was really something else. So, yeah, that's another uh, story. Not even, like, th these are all true accounts that people have reported about the lighthouse. Not even, like, stories that creepypasta people have made up. But, um, those are two I'm going to read for you guys because my kids are acting up, and I don't want to keep them waiting any longer. So, thank you for listening this week.
like I said, hopefully next week uh, audio won't be too bad, and you'll have me and Brittany signing off with you. Um, so if you want to check out more about the podcast, go to the website. It's winkillersgetcaught.com, and there you can see all of our episodes listed. Uh, you can even leave us emails, or you can leave us reviews on the website. You can check out Brittany's TikTok. It's uh, at Cult Podcast. And you can check me out on whatever. Um, like Twitch, I am Foxy Trainer on Twitch. And you can leave us emails, like actual email emails, at cultpodcast at gmail.com. All right. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.